This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You might remember a while back we had the mayor of Trent Hills on, Hector McMillan, uh, and he was telling us his story of pancreatic cancer. Uh, He is back on Canadian soil after seeking surgery in Germany. Let's get the whole story, bring him in here. Mayor for Trent Hills, Hector McMillan, he's with us now. Hello, Hector, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well. And I'll tell you one thing right off the top, Hector. The last time we talked, you didn't say the word great. No, I didn't. <laughs> That's for sure. Both my producer and I noticed that, that uh, when you were chatting on the phone last time, you had a whole different uh, outlook than you do now. Tell us exactly what happened if people aren't following this story. Well, I was looking for a procedure to uh, get this uh, tumor out of my pancreas, a cancer tumor. And uh, we have the technology and the equipment to do it in Toronto. And uh, Ontario won't do it. OHIP won't do it. And they won't pay to have it done elsewhere either. So that's basically the, the story. Uh, I applied for other country funding. I was refused. I attempted to go through the uh, process of appealing their decision, which turns out to be rigged. And it's been deliberately rigged so that uh, applicants will fail. You will not get funding from them. And um, they basically just, uh, they're they're turning out a thousand Ontarians a year to die when this procedure is available to them. So when were you first diagnosed, Hector? Uh, We're coming up a year. We're coming up a year, which is, you know, that's, that's that's not common for someone to have... Uh, pancreatic cancer and and get it stretched out this long. That's very true. What was the prognosis when you were diagnosed a year ago? They told me six months with chemotherapy and and five to six months with chemotherapy and 11 without it. They said by Christmas I'd be done. Wow. Um, So how did you find out about this procedure in Germany? My sister doing research on the internet and uh, other people as well uh, started emailing us information. Did any of the doctors that you talked to mention any of this about this procedure that you you got in Germany? If you have stage four pancreatic cancer, in fact, I don't even know if it matters what stage you are. If you have pancreatic cancer in Ontario, you're dead. Yeah, they push you right over the edge. So tell us about this treatment in Germany. Well, it's uh, it's called IRE, irreversible electroporation. Uh, the machine is called a nano knife. It's manufactured right in Albany, New York, just across Lake Ontario. And like I said, there is one sitting at the University Health Network in Toronto. They've never used it for pancreatic cancer. How, how, how come they have not used this machine? Now, there's the $320,000 question we're going to get the answer to. There's no reason why they, why they have not been using it for pancreatic cancer. My understanding is they've used it 15 times for liver cancer only but they've not used it for any of the other organs that it will also work on. And the doctors there have been to Kentucky. They know Dr. Martin down there. There's no reason why they're they're not doing it in Toronto. No reason whatsoever. And it's cheap. It's approximately $7,000 per patient for the electrodes, which are consumed, each and every patient, and about another $7,000 per patient for the hospital stay. So $14,000 per patient. That's cheap. When chemo, chemotherapy starts at 30, hmm. so there's a reason why. One thing I can tell you since I've been in politics now for 13 years, when something that makes absolutely all the sense in the world can't be done, you can be sure there's money in it somewhere for somebody. Hmm. There's something funny going on. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. No. Believe me. But uh- there's something wrong here. Uh, that that's for certain. Uh, tell us why did you choose Germany? Was this available in the U.S.? I was originally going to U.S. to to Dr. Martin, uh, and his fees are are quite reasonable. His his own fees, but the the system in the states being a totally a la carte system. Yeah. The hos- the hospital stay alone was going to be another hundred and fifteen thousand U.S. Mm-hmm. Plus the radiologist, the pathologist, the anesthesiologist. You know, the custodian, the, the the cook, the baker, the yeah. candlestick maker, everybody, <laughs> and and it was going to be upwards of two hundred and fifty thousand U.S. I just couldn't achieve it. So, what was the cost in Germany, if you don't mind me asking? 
not including the travel costs, it was uh, just under 32,000 Canadian. My goodness. A tenth. Now, the travel costs... How, how do you explain it being so much less than the United States? Who's paying well, the rest? Uh, I, I can't explain it. It's not really a question for me, other than I can tell you from our research, it comes down to the hospital cost. Yeah. So tell us about this procedure, and how new is it? What can you tell us about this procedure? It's been out for eight years, so it's certainly not experimental. There's uh, 260 hospitals around the world doing it, uh, 60 of them alone right in the U.S. The machine was made in, in Albany by AngioDynamics. Um, so it doesn't matter where you have it done. The consumables, the electrodes, are coming from them anyway. And... Um, uh, for, for the pancreas, they open you up, they insert the probes in, guided by, uh, uh, oh, having a brain fart here. Um, so they're watching it on a screen is what you're telling me. Yeah, the yeah. imaging. Okay, real yep. Com- real, real common imaging. I'm just yep. having a bit of a brain fart. But anyway, um, I, I was about to say sonar. But yeah, <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Um, Ultrasound. Ultrasound, there you go. They insert the probes by ultrasound, and when they've got them where they want them, they push the button and they electrocute it with 3,000 volts. And that's the end of it. It's dead. It it, it almost sounds too simple, Hector, doesn't it? What was it like when you were sitting in the doctor's office and they were explaining this to you after you got your prognosis from Ontario? I'd, I'd already read all about it that when, through our research online. I, I knew exactly what the machine looked like. I knew what it was capable of doing. Um, I'm a techie guy. In fact, I hold several Ontario trade licenses. Um, as soon as I read all about it, I said, That's, I'm in for that. That's me. i got to get this thing. So what did doctors say to you when you were down there, or, up, or in Germany, rather, and looking at your scenario? Did they say, yeah, no problem, we can handle that? Was it... Yeah. We, we sent all my records and copies of my, my scans on, on disk. We shipped that all over to, uh, to the uh, surgeon by DHL. Was it difficult to get that information from, no. you, from no, your doctors? No, the, no, the hospitals will, will readily provide you with a copy of your files. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, it was 250 euros to the, to the doctors, uh, well, actually his professor, and... and um, he prefers to be called that. His staff call him Professor Bird. Mm-hmm. He um, sent him 250 euros for a review because he does get uh, contacts from around the world. He's quite busy doing that. And if he accepts you as a candidate, then the hospital itself will send you uh, an invoice, and you send that by bank wire, and they book your appointment. Wow. Uh, how long were you there, Hector? Um, I was there for a little over three weeks. And as it turned out, I didn't, I didn't need to be, but going on our original research was from Dr. Martin in Kentucky. Uh, I was to be in the hospital for approximately eight days, and then he wanted us to stay in the area for an additional two weeks. Right. So that, that's what I had counted on. Um, I didn't need all of that time, but I suppose the next, the next, next patient that comes along might. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, it was in and out in four hours. So the actual was, procedure itself was only four hours? Yeah, I never even went into ICU. I was up walking around that afternoon. Really? Yeah. This thing's a slam dunk. There's been three other Canadians come over since I was there. Actually, I saw some of them before I left, who have been following the story on the media. All their families were there with them. What's the prognosis? What did the doctor say? What's the survival rate? How is this a temporary thing? Is it a permanent fix? What is it? Well, the average from the studies that have been done, and contrary to what our experts in Ontario say, there has been a 200-patient multi-center study done in the U.S., and the median at that time was an additional 23 months. Dr. Martin, who is the leading, foremost pioneer on IRE, told me, he said, because of uh, the great condition that I was in and the fact that I had gone almost a year beyond the original diagnosis that I was far out on what he called the right-hand end of the curve. Mm-hmm. He said, I can't give you any longer than what we've been doing it. He said, but I will give you the maximum. He said, you're looking five, six, 
plus years. Could you get this procedure again if it comes back? Does it come back? Well, I would have to ask them that if it, if it does come back, but I have absolutely no intention of letting it come back. I'm, I'm taking this <laughs> to, the next, to the next level. Um, when I left the hospital, I drove to Hamburg, and uh, I gave a blood sample there and had a sample of the tumor sent to a laboratory there, and I'm having DNA sequencing done, done on it. And when I get that report and the answers, I'm sending it out to three guys out in, in Alberta who will plug it into their computer system, and it will tell me exactly what I should be taking, how often, hmm. and uh, for how long of a focused or targeted chemotherapy that will attack that those cells if there should be any left in my body anywhere right. and hunt them down and destroy it. This is new for Canada. Focused chemo. Yeah. And it might be and it might be a natural chemo. It might not be the you know the cookie cutter sledgehammer that they give you. Yeah. So how are you feeling now? Dangerous. <laughs> the province wants to watch out because I'm coming after them. Wow, Hector, this is an incredible story. Well, the, the story about me is over, and I want to be clear about that. You know, thanks to all of you guys in the media for, for getting us out in the public's eye, now we've got to work on the other thousand Ontarians every year who are just being cast off to die. I just, uh, Hector, I, I lost a friend just last week to this. Well, you know what it's like. Yeah. And I bet you they didn't offer him anything. No, no. 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 Here's, here's the Fulfirinox, if you can take it. And it works. There's no doubt about it. And it works better from, for some people than it does for others, and, yeah. and that's to be expected. But, oh, boy, it's hard on you. I took five treatments of the Fulfirinox chemotherapy. It almost wiped me out. Yeah. I had to give it up. I couldn't do it. And I started using natural remedies. And there's lots of them, and the doctors won't even comment on those. Everything from cannabis oil to graviola to chaga tea. A buddy of mine, actually my brother-in-law, his best friend, was diagnosed over five years ago with cancer. He's a heavy equipment operator. He's never missed a day of work. And all he does is take graviola drops a couple times a day and drink chaga tea. His doctor was so angry at him that his doctor fired him. There's something wrong. Yeah. There's something really wrong here. And our health care system, which we know is a, a bill that the province is having difficulty paying, at least that's what they tell us every year, they could be saving so much money by dropping some of these drug companies out of the picture and allowing people to have other alternatives that are not only easy to take, but they're far less costly. What, um, anything more on this machine that's in, uh, in Toronto that's, that's apparently sitting there idle? Uh, is there any, any effort being made to fire this thing up and, and get trading people here? I've, I've heard rumors by the grapevine that they're now either considering it or perhaps the word should be reconsidering it. Um, I don't have firsthand knowledge of that, but I've, I've had someone say to me that uh, there is talks going on between uh, the doctors at, at the UHN, and the ones that, that call the shots there is Dr. Stephen Gallinger and uh, Dr. Sean Cleary. They're the experts. Uh, why they're not advocating for this is beyond me. We don't need any more studies. What uh, have you talked to any of them or your previous doctors since all of this happened? Uh, what is their thought on it? I have not received any contacts from any of my doctors that I've had contact with uh, since being diagnosed with pancreatic uh, cancer, other than the surgeon in Kingston who did fill out my forms when I applied for for out of country. Uh, funding that I was denied. What does he say about this? What does he say about you having to go there to get it? Well, he, he, he wished me all the best. Yeah. But all these doctors say that they're, it's outside of their field, at least currently. Yeah. 
So this is where I'm having difficulty. So it's not like they're ignorant. It's they're, 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 So what do you think the problem is? Do you think well, people know that this equipment is sitting there not doing the job that it could be doing? Do you think they're just unaware of what's... Like, I can't see them being unaware of what's going on in Germany and Kentucky. I mean... This is the problem. And I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Because Minister Hoskins has said, I leave those decisions up to our Ontario experts. Fair enough. Someone define for me, please, who are or what are the characteristics of an Ontario expert? Hmm. Because I have yet to find one who will even know anything about IRE or admit to it. And if we don't have those people out there searching for what the next best mousetrap is that we should be using in Ontario, who's the experts? Yeah. My sister who did the research? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. We, we don't have anybody out there advocating for Ontarians. There's something very, very wrong. So we don't have any Ontarian experts. So how can the minister say he's going to rely on somebody in Ontario who is likely a doctor, with all due respect to our physicians, but who has no field background in these new technologies? So how can he be considered an expert if he doesn't know anything about it? So what's, next, so what's next for you, Hector, in the immediate future? We've only got about 30 seconds here. I'm, I'm, I'm writing my letter as we speak to the Ombudsman. It's going to take me some time to polish it up, but I'm making my official complaint to the Ombudsman, and depending on the outcome of the Ombudsman's uh, work, if they should take it up, from there I'm going to the OPP, and I'm expecting criminal charges to be laid. Hector McMillan has been with us, Mayor for Trent Hills. You remember he, of course, was on the show talking about his pancreatic cancer just back from Germany and feeling dangerous. Hector, I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad for you. Please keep us abreast of what's going on, and we'll follow your story. Call anytime. Thank you, Hector. Good luck to you. Uh, Wow, an amazing story. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Just under two weeks to go. What do we got? 11 days to go until the presidential election. Uh, At this point, Trump says, quote, we should just cancel the election and give it to Trump. Well, I guess he'd like that, wouldn't he? Uh, That's right, uh, himself. Uh, This despite Hillary leading Trump overall in some polls. But can you really trust these polls? Lots say just average them out. That'll give you the best and most accurate Uh, I guess, indication of what's going down. Uh, And, of course, he's doubled down on his remarks about the Khan family and blamed the microphones for the 2005 Access Hollywood video as it all continues on and Hillary gets a free ride to the White House. To talk more about all of this, Henry Jasek is with us, professor of political science at McMaster University and is with us now. Hello, Henry. How are you today? Uh, Not too bad, Scott. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We always enjoy having you on. Uh, Let's talk about the polls first, Henry. can we trust polls? Do we trust polls? Uh, you know, where, where do we stand with this nowadays? Well, I think I would probably trust the polls, uh, averaging them out and looking what we got nationwide. It looks like about last I calculated it, about 6% for Hillary Clinton. And even if, say, 1% or 2% of those people uh, were really silent Trump supporters, that is, they wouldn't admit it in the poll, but they would vote for him, that still would give it. Hillary the uh, the win. I would point out in the Brexit vote in um, in the United Kingdom mm-hmm. they had what they and in the election before that they had a what they called the silent Tory vote and then there was a silent vote in Brexit. Again, that was only about one or two percent. So in a, in a close election, it would matter. But I don't. It, right now, it doesn't look like it's going to be close. And uh, there's other people who are saying that uh, there are uh, people who, uh, well, in the case of. Uh, a number of families are saying the husband is all for Trump, but the wife doesn't want to really ruffle her husband's feathers, and she sort of nods in agreement, but in fact she's going to vote for Hillary. So some people say 40% of the American families are like that. So hmm. we'll see. It could be. It could be. So it could be bigger for Hillary because these women may essentially, you know, do with uh, you know vote for Hillary without telling anybody. Let me ask you this, Henry: Should it even be this close? Shouldn't it be greater, considering the flimflam show that we've seen? Are you surprised it is even? this close partially although i i had good reasons i mean i i probably shouldn't be although i i I thought it would but i'll tell you why i i actually have been spending a lot of time uh studying listening to uh people who are voting for trump who don't have the characteristics so for example uh 
especially people over the age of, you know, older voters who, who you know, who should find Trump's behavior against everything they learned when they were young, right? Hmm. And yet you'll, you'll hear people who are 70 saying, well, lifelong Republicans, well, I'm holding my nose to vote for Trump. And I say, how can you do that? Or what even makes me more surprised, where you'll have evangelical ministers and evangelicals who will say that it's a, a sin not to vote for Trump. And I said, how, how, what's going through their minds? I don't understand an evangelical voter. I mean, because people have gone through and are absolutely convinced that they've, you know, people who've studied Trump, that while he may not have done illegal things, that he has continually violated at least eight of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, they're legal. You know, you can, you, you can violate the Ten Commandments Ooh, and not break man. the law, but they figure he repeatedly has broken eight of the ten at least. So is that, maybe we should, and maybe how, that's the new criteria now. As long as you don't break the, uh, as long as you don't break the law, you can break the commandments. I mean, so I cannot understand how an <laughs> evangelical Christian paying attention to this election could actually vote for these guys. And I must say, the people I the the, the the religious people I take my who are Republicans I take my hat off for them are the Mormons in Utah, the Mormons have said listen we can't vote for this person, hmm. and I think you know they are traditionally Republican yeah and 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 I say I take my hats out to the Mormons. So I mean, what will they do? Will they stay home? No, they're going to stay for independent candidates. Hmm. They want to see a new uh, a new conservative party. In, uh, in the United States. They want to get rid of the Republican Party. They want to get rid of Trump. And some people are talking that this could possibly happen after the election. I don't think it will, but it, but I mean, I, at least I think they're, you know, I think they're doing moral, given their moral stance, I think they're doing morally the correct thing. And, and it's got under Good for them. Trump's skin. I loved, he made one comment. I don't know where he made it, but I just heard about it. He called it the Mormon Mafia. Now, I don't know how you describe the Mormon religion as, as the Mormon mafia. Now, that, that, wow. That is, that, that, I mean, every time I think he has said something uh, that can't, he can't top, when I hear the Mormon wow. mafia, that topped everything so far. That is, that is amazing. It, oh, I my mean, goodness. He, he really has confused this campaign with a reality show, hasn't he? I mean, honest to God. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, he, he, he can't. I mean, he's a master of making up crazy things and hmm. saying them with a straight face. I think it's more about alliteration than it is about... <laughs> yeah, I think it's alliteration. I agree with you. And, I mean, he, I, mean I think he, he, must believe, you know, he must believe that, essentially, his reality is that he's on a, uh, you know, he's on a, a te- television show, that he's an entertainment show. And, of course, it's all the media's fault because they're talking about things that he is saying, that's so right. that's not good, I guess. Now, and here we are talking about just this. We're not saying yeah. anything about Hillary. Will that's Hillary right. Will Hillary catch up, or will Hillary's past catch up with her in the next 11 days? Or uh, are voters just going to hold their nose, as you said, and vote? Well, I think, I think just about everybody's probably made up their mind at this point. I mean, it's hard to imagine... Uh, people, many, very many people who haven't made up their minds simply because the two of them have been in the news for way over a year every day. I mean, I don't know how you, you know, unless you're not, you know, paying any attention to the news at all, and you have no TV, no radio, no internet, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're living, you're living out in the woods, with, you know, where no one can talk to you. I mean, people must have made up their minds by now, I would think, and it, it really, I think, it becomes turnout. And also the third-party candidate. Some of these older Republicans are like the not only like the Mormons. They're going to vote for third-party candidates. Mm-hmm. They'll vote for the Libertarian. Guy. Who does that benefit, though, if they start splitting the vote like that? Yeah, but their view is, yeah. I, I mean, there are people who take the position, and I think morally, I can understand it. They'll say, okay, there's two people, uh, two people, options that are bad, and there's one good option. The good option, I can't see how it possibly can win. But I feel morally I have to vote for the good option. I simply can't vote for the two bad options. And so they're going to have a bunch of people who think that way. They're not going to think strategically. They're not going to think that they're going to put one of the bad people in. They're thinking, I, my moral imperative is to vote for the good person, even if the good person is not going to win. Hmm. And I think there's a lot of people that think that way. Uh, we don't know how much. And, of course, you know the Mormons think that way uh, in Utah and I think there's a, there are some other people who think that way as well. But what shocks me is, is there's a lot of people who, 
don't think that way and you think they ought to think that way because you know the, the, they're voting for a candidate that doesn't have anything to gr- agree with what they think is proper right hmm. so uh has hillary had the free ride i mean will anything at this point stick to her in the last 11 days because it seems that trump's kind of bottomed out i mean you know nobody's really shocked anymore no. it's like you know after listening to comedians drop the f-bomb after they do it 50 times it's not shocking anymore that's right, that's right. so you know I, i'm I'm wondering if, like, and again, it seemed to be with his uh, the speech that he had um, in New York with the with the Catholic Church and such when Hillary was there. Um, it's pretty much I, like we're pretty much at the bottom of the barrel, are we not? Yeah, I, you would think so. You would think so. Uh, I, but as again, as I said, even if you bring out new stuff on Hillary, I think people have pretty much made up their mind. Yeah, they'll say, and you know, and the thing about emails is. Now, you know, I know a lot of people want to talk about it, but I think for the average person, deleting your email doesn't really sound like a big thing. Yeah. I know. I mean, I mean, who doesn't delete emails? Yeah. (laughs) Including emails that might be embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we've most people have done that. So it's it's hard. I mean, I don't think people understand that as a bad thing. It may, you know, you, you, you can go into the argument, well, these are maybe government secrets and stuff and other other stuff. You shouldn't be doing this. And But it's, it's too technically, I think, com, you know, complicated. Yeah. And it's about an act that we all do. And, and uh, nobody can really see the damage at this point. That, that's right. But you know? if you... If, but you contrast it with somebody who says, "Oh yeah, you know, I hit on this married woman, or, and you know, yeah. and I grabbed her here and there." Well, we we could we say, "Hey, that I can understand that, and that's not good." Yeah, you know? so, <laughs> that's a good point. Deleting an email that you know sort of pales in comparison to you know you know sexually grabbing somebody of the opposite sex. So, what do you think the turnout will be, uh, Henry? And do you think it would be different if it was in Canada? Because this sort of thing seems to keep Canadians away from the polls, but now that they're saying in the United States that the advanced polls are up. So, yeah. what do you think will happen with the turnout with I, this? I actually do, I, I would suspect, because of all the publicity and all the attention, that in fact the, the turnout will go up. Even even people who are disgusted by everything, I still think they're going to come out and vote. Now they have some independent options, but I still think people are going to come out. And I just I do think, I mean I do think there's different people. You know people, you know you are going to have a higher turnout. So uh, you know particularly, I mean there's going to be guys who think the world of Trump, who normally you know wouldn't leave the bar, leave their beer getting warm on the bar, they'll go and vote. Uh, some for the, for Trump, but on the other hand, you may have a bunch of uh, people who you know who just can't stand what Trump said, and particularly maybe women who might not have voted in the past. So I think there's all categories and young people. You know, I think there's, I mean, I, I think it will. I think it'll bring young people up simply because of you know the all the publicity and the heightened attention to it. It, it should bring more people out because of the attention. Uh, he does have supporters. I hear from them uh, yep. on the phone. I mean, yep. they'll email me. Uh, are they wrong? Are they uneducated? Um, y- you know, uh, or are they angry at the system itself? And as I've talked about, I think probably with you as well before, right. if I was one of them, I'd be angry that he didn't better articulate himself and prepare right. To give at least um, you know himself a shot at beating Hillary, I, I would be disappointed that this guy's going up, going down in flames, as opposed to you know uh, taking advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, and also the damage he's going to do to the Republican Party. And yeah, the collateral damage on top. If you're a Republican, you ought to be pretty angry at him. Yeah, yeah. Because he's he's taking down reasonable Republicans, conservative Republicans. He's taking he's going to take conservative Republicans down. He's going to take reasonable Republicans down. Yeah, I would be if I was a Republican, I I would be angry at him at that for sure. But I I just think some some people their anger is so great. There's nothing objectionable somebody could do if they're against something. So you're voting not for somebody. I have a feeling you're voting it. You're voting against Hillary Clinton. You're voting against the Clintons. You're voting against the U.S. government because you think they take too much of your taxes. Or you're a guy who loves his guns and you collect guns and you've had a run-in with the, with, with the people, you know, with, with, a, with some, you know, the police or some, you know, federal agency over your guns. Uh, or you think they are going to come and take your guns, and you're just angry as hell, and you just ignore everything else. You're just angry at the government. You're angry at somebody trying to tell you how to live your life. 
you know, it's, it's, it's running on anger. And I think that's, that's basically the Trump phenomenon. It's essentially, he's being supported by angry people. Uh, some, I think there's an article in the Washington Post the other day about Americans being worried about violence after election or on election day. What are your thoughts on that? I, I know. I've read it. I actually have been reading it today about people who are talking about taking up arms. I don't. I think for the most part that's talk. <laughs> I hope it is, but I think it is. And I think there may be a few people who might do some incidences of trying to, you know, go out in the countryside and carve off an independent part of the U.S. Uh, people do that from time to time up in yeah. Montana and other places. But I, I think, you know, the government will be able to handle it. I don't. I just think, I just, quite frankly, I think for almost everybody, the day after, people are going to feel relief that the nightmare is over. Yeah, good point. Uh, we've certainly heard lots of chatter about the rigged rhetoric and, and the election and everything and such. Um, do you think if Donald does lose at the end of all of this, um, or when he loses, whichever camp you're in, um, do you think that he will do the right thing and settle people down as opposed to saying, I don't know, I think it's rigged, I, I and think, then jump I, in his I, copter I, I, I and go off to the golf course? Yeah, I think it's the latter. <laughs> He'll probably give some sort of speech and disappear and go on vacation somewhere. Maybe to Scotland to his golf course. But do you think he'll come out? Do you think he'll come out and do the right thing and say, "I accept this decision, and you should too," and and do the right thing the way all the presidents have done in the power? Uh, sorry, all those that have lost the, the run for the presidency in yeah. the past. Well, it's going to be hard because I'm sure his family is going to tell him. I mean, you got to you got to close this down and end this the right way. And uh, but the question is, can his family even control him now? I mean, his, his kids and his wife. But theoretically, he, he could incite rioting if he wants to. Well, he could say it, except that I just think basically, I think, I think, the, the, poli- I think the police and the authorities will have none of it. I don't, I don't think they're going to allow any of this to happen, because it's just too dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it is just so dangerous, because you can't allow another country like Russia, should we say, to think that we have disorder in this country, because then maybe he's going to... Putin will try to do something crazy, you know, because he said, oh, the U.S. will be so, um, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, fixated on the fact that they've got all these little insurrections around. I can go off and do something like, you know, grab Ukraine or something like that. You know, God knows what he would do, you know, what he might do. But and, but the fear of that is what will drive the United States, We have, that they have to appear to be strong, because they know they're most vulnerable, you know, right, or at, right after the election, because you've elected somebody... And, the, and then he, uh, that person isn't in yet, and then old person is right. know, a lame duck. And so that, that's always a dangerous thing for, for a country like the United States. So, Henry, what do you think the next week and a half is going to look like as we approach this? What, what do you think it's going to be like? I, I, think, I, I guess it's going to be the same. I don't know. I, I can't imagine. I mean, I thought at some point he was going to run away, but he's clearly not been running away. I thought I thought at some point he would think I'm re- I've really got this all lost and I'm just going to leave I'm just going to yeah. get on my jet and fly somewhere and say, <laughs> it's right. all rigged give a speech it's all rigged I'm not I'm not uh, you know <clears throat> competing anymore goodbye I'm out of here but you know I thought he, I thought there was fifty fifty he would do it but I guess not. So, uh, do, do you think that he has, uh, I mentioned earlier that it seems the last two weeks that he's kind of bottomed out, that there's not much more. After the third debate and, and after that, that dinner that I was uh, speaking of, right. it seemed that it's, it's all pretty much more the same. Do you think we've got to the point where we're just kind of burned out on it all? And, and well, what? I, I would think most people are burned out. I can tell you, I'm just about burned out on yeah. it all. Yeah, I, I think most people are burned out. As I said, I think they just want this nightmare to be over. All right. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and, of course, uh, about a week and a half left uh, before the big election in the United States. Uh, We're just all hanging on at this point. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good talking to you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right. I I guess this is no surprise. Uh, It's hard to get a job these days. According to Stats Canada data, there's nearly no job growth for people in their prime working age. And this is the other thing. This is supposed to be people's most productive age uh, from 25 to 54. Uh, Despite showing gains, I guess, last month and this time last year, uh, not the case at this point. Also, two thirds of Canadian workers would like to make changes in their career. To talk more about all of this, Christo Avalis is with us, Queen's University labor and political history professor, and on the line with us now. Hi, Christo. How are you today? How are you? 
good. I'm doing well. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, what does it say when our peak most productive segment of the population, that being 25 to 54, uh, can't get work? I mean, where does that leave our country and our economy? Well, you know, it's, it's, not, it's, it's certainly not a good sign. I mean, I, as you say, there's, there's a general feeling that, you know, when you're young, that, you know, you're, you're either you're, you're, you're getting an education to kind of prepare yourself to be a productive, you know, citizen, and that when you're older, you know, you'll, you should be, a, you'll hopefully be able to enjoy retirement and, you know, depend upon the kind of middling population to be able to take care of you. And I think it says something perhaps a bit troubling that for that productive kind of wedge of the population that they're finding, you know, getting jobs difficult or, you know, even if they have employment, you know, the lack of job growth maybe means that, you know, wages might stagnate, there'll be less opportunities, which means that from everything from, you know, tax revenue to social program solvency could be affected by, you know, low wages for the next generation of workers. Is that what it is? Because obviously we're in a new world. We're in a new economy. Uh, do, do, do people now just have to wait for the rest of this to kick in? Do we have to wait for the rest of the dominoes to fall as we transition? I mean, I mean that's, that's, a, that's a tricky question. I think there is, you know, there, there, there are new changes coming with, you know, increased automation, with increased globalization of trade and of, of you know, companies being able to move. I think that has kind of given more cards to the employer's hands, if you will, mm-hmm. and that you know allows them to you know to, to have less workers to be to, to still produce high levels of productivity or to shift work to different parts of the world, which makes it again more difficult for people to maybe find jobs in general, but especially find a lot of those good jobs, whether it's in manufacturing or some of the good white collar jobs that that maybe are less available now than they've been. You know, in, in the last couple generations, I think that's that that is a, a factor at play here. So, considering automation and technology, the way things are going, and mind you, we've had these arguments or discussions for decades and decades and decades now, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, will this problem increase? Is there only more unemployment away? Uh, is there only uh, is there just even more unemployment in the future, uh, in the next decade or so? I mean, I think there could be some balancing factors. I think that there is something to be said that we are in an interesting point right now in our demographics um, with the baby boom still kind of petering out. And the reality is that there hasn't been kind of such a boom in the recent levels of population. So there might be more consistent population transitions, say, from this generation, the people born today versus their children versus their children. And unless we see something again like a, you know, a World War II type scenario and you know, God willing, we don't, um, you know, uh, the reality is that that might be a mitigated factor. But I think that you might see increased technological unemployment because, you know, whereas a lot of the initial parts of the Industrial Revolution was replacing muscle labor with, with machines, whether it was the muscle of animals or the muscle of humans, now we're seeing machines able to kind of do things that are, that we, that even 20 years ago we thought weren't possible around Everything, even creating music now, some machines are able to do. And there could be a concern that absent, you know, regulations around um, ensuring that, you know, everyone has a basic standard of living, that it could create a lot of political and social problems if there's a few people who have jobs and a few people who own the machines and then kind of everybody else, you know, left, left you know, with nothing. This almost sounds like a 1930s or 40s vision of the future way back when. Um, um, are, at the end of the day, will this self-correct itself? Will, will this be self-correcting once the largest segment of the population, meaning the baby boomers, finally do retire and get out of the workforce with less population coming in the other end? Is it not maybe just 10 or 20 years away before things just take off again? See, I don't, I don't quite think it's going to be self-correcting. Like, I, as I noted, I think there will be a transition factor that maybe smooths things out a little bit. There are problems, of course, with the boomers retiring. The reality is if people in their 20s and 30s can't afford to absorb the house values, you know, in places like Toronto and yep. Vancouver yep. and other big cities, I mean, a lot of, of middle-class people um, have, you know, pensions, but they also have an expectation that their house value, their land value, will be a part of their retirement. Mm-hmm. And if young people can't afford those houses, those 
houses aren't worth $800,000 until somebody is willing to buy them for $800,000. Good point. So there's, there's a value potential distortion there, but I feel like we really do need to kind of approach this politically because I feel that if there is an increased worry uh, that automation will continue and, and, and grow in pace, and, um, you know, there has been discussions that one of the big dominoes that could fall is the automation of, of, of transportation. Yeah. And in a lot of parts of this country, in the United States, for instance, some of the most popular jobs are, or most common jobs are, you know, people who drive trucks or drive cars or what have you, the, yep. you know, delivery men, uh, you know, taxi drivers. And once those jobs are automated, or at least partially so, you'll have millions of people out of work, and it'll be hard to transition them. So I think, in a sense, you need to be able to explore um, how machines uh, are, are produced, who owns them, and how the value of those machines. Because most people will, will agree that you know, we, we produce more and more efficiently than we ever have as a kind of country or a kind of species, and that's a good thing. But it, as you mentioned, back in the 1930s and 1940s, a lot of, and I come across this in my research, a lot of trade union publications and whatnot weren't so much afraid of the automation itself as the fact that a few people, a few companies would kind of own the means of that automation. Mm-hmm. And they saw that as a potential danger to democracy. That, you know, what, what are the risks of, you know, uh, you know, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and just a few other people owning all of these machines to a democratic society. Hmm. You, you know, you brought up the the automobile, and for example, you know, you, you look at what Google's doing now with trucks that'll drive from here to there with their load without a driver, uh, this sort of thing. And, and obviously, as you've mentioned, the amount of people that are employed in that industry who use vehicles or delivery or whatever, let alone the manufacturing of them and such, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that none of those people had jobs because those machines didn't exist. So, again, someone created a machine, the automobile, and it generated a lot of jobs for everyone else. Won't technology continue to do, to do that? It's just, you know, instead of people working in a coal mine now, now they're assembling cars. Instead of assembling cars now, they're uh, designing computer systems. I mean... Isn't that simply progress? Well, I you know, in the at the end of the day, we're still better off than we were in past generations. No, potentially. Um, one of the problems with the industrial revolution is yes, by the end of it, you know, society produced more. Eventually, incomes rose and life expectancies rose. But there were millions of people who, you know, for their entire lives, you know, became significantly poorer, died much younger had worse life expectancies and, and, and worse uh, uh, qualities of life because the transition period for many, many people uh, is very difficult. Yeah. And the question in part is, even if we are going to be better off, um, how do we, you know, as a society, share the increased value of that productivity with the, say, 10 million truck drivers in, in, you know, in North America who end up becoming unemployed? Because on the one hand, but you know what you're making it sound, and I and I hope and I don't want to get too political on this, yeah. and and Christo, but to me, what it says is that the companies that are making all of this money and own the machine per se, they have to make sure they pay when the tractor trailer driver gets put out of business. Um, how do they pay? Don't they pay just by retraining that person to, you know, uh, you know, to, to move on to other things as opposed to just sitting there because the tractor trailer job is, has, has gone? I mean, you know, I can think of my father who worked at the same place for 32 years. I can think of myself who've been in this business for almost that same amount of time and probably have had about 10 employers. Um, so... Uh, is it really about doing the same thing or is it teaching? Is it about doing the same thing and then when you're unemployed having someone look after you or is it about constantly retraining and constantly raising the bar? I mean, you, you, you can't have the same job that you had when you were 18 for the rest of your life. It just doesn't work anymore. Is that a bad thing? Isn't that progress by continually educating ourselves and upgrading? No, I think, I, think, I think to a large degree you're correct. I think the point I was trying to get at was that under our current system, there is no mechanism that if we lose 10 million auto jobs or transportation jobs, that the companies will be, through increased taxation or special levies, required to share some of that wealth 
in a general re-education fund. Could that be because we're not there yet and we're not going to lose 10 million jobs like overnight? It will be a very gradual thing. Well, it will be gradual in a relative sense. My concern, again, is that it's not so much that it it doesn't cause progress. The concern is that we have potentially long-term trends to look at here. And again, it's affecting everything from, could affect everything from home values to the ability for our social programs to kind of continue for the generations that are affected at least in part by the potential loss of, you know, well-paying jobs. So you think this will make a bigger shock than, say, the Industrial Revolution or anything like that? That's, that's, uh, if I knew that, I'd be, uh... Well, exactly, yeah. But but you're anticipating a great social shock when this happens. But I am. I, I am. Because I am worried that... There are some changes coming along this way that are, are, are akin to the Industrial Revolution. We will see some industries disappear and mm-hmm. other industries, uh, you know, come in their place. And for those people, there will be great opportunities, and we will see, I, I think, increased GDP, for instance. Well, per capita, we will produce more wealth in Canada. But I am concerned that some of the technological changes will, you know, be of a certain variety that are, are difficult to predict, that could be very difficult to retrain people for, mm-hmm. and that we are going to have certain social and political realities that 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 might require. So, for example, looking at a guaranteed annual income, the idea might be that there could be for some people no meaningful work to do, and we have to have a political discussion of, well, what do we do with a society that produces more wealth than ever before, yet leaves you know a lot of people on the unemployment rolls. Like, do we have to value? But see, you're 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 assuming then that say the unemployment, and I don't know what the what the national unemployment rate is now. You probably do. Do you say it? What is it? Seven um, percent? No, not off the top of my head. Say, but I mean, it's 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 not it's not it's you know within kind of historical parameters. Exactly. So I guess yeah. my point that I'm making here, Christo, is that do you anticipate that a decade from now, two decades from now, that the unemployment numbers will be drastically different than what they have been as we have continued to progress over time? You know, I, I mean, do you have I, any I, reason to believe that yeah. they'll be greater with the technological revolution? I mean, I think it, it, it's going to be somewhat difficult to predict because I think, as we discussed, you know, the effect of the baby boomers kind of exiting the market might smooth it out a little bit. There could be some of that. But I do see over the next couple generations, and again, that's, that's long term. So, you know, for politicians right here and now, it's difficult to think in that concept because the election's, you know, always three, four, five years away. But I do feel that, yeah, over the next couple generations, there will be, you know, massive effects on the economy and that there will be, you know, um, political decisions that need to be made to, to address that. Because, again, even if as a society, because it's the standard free trade argument, the general argument is that free trade produces more wealth for everyone, and it, uh, for a society, and it does. But one of the problems is, is that it causes uneven share of that progress. So I think that is going to be a discussion we need to have. And unlike the Industrial Revolution, which did create a concentration of wealth, there was very few things, at least at first, that looked like Facebook or Tesla Motors or Uber. And that these kind of companies um, are really changing the game and their ability to grow so quickly, so fast, and corner a market so dominantly. And I feel that there could be discussions that need to be have had about Again, how the progress of our society, which is happening, I agree with you 100%, is shared more equitably. And as you say, it might not just be keeping people in jobs for the sake of keeping them in jobs, but it could be, you know, investing in, you know, vocational and academic training to make sure that we maximize our population and their, you know, capabilities to, you know, produce further gains. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. And in Scandinavia, um, even in the kind of post-war era, that was one of the reasons why, you know, they made such progress is that companies in those countries, you know, automated uh, like they do here, but they were required to pay into certain funds that would uh, be, you know, allocated solely to worker retraining. And part of their cost to society of the increased automated value of their companies was to take care of the workers, to retrain them so that they could go on from being assembly line workers to technicians. And that's something we might be able to look at. What do you think uh, life holds for this generation? Will this generation, the millennials that are making their way through the system now, will they have what their parents have, do you think? Um, you know, in, in some, like, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily doom and gloom. I, I think there will be some, 
some things that they continue to have. I mean, I think that for a lot of people, there will still be, you know, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the fulfillments that everyone had, you know, in terms of, um, you know, you know, family life and whatnot. Hopefully, we continue to live through a peaceful and relatively prosperous society. But there are a lot of question marks about, you know, job security. And as you know, you know, even even people. You know, you know, in the '60s and '70s and '80s, didn't necessarily have the 19 to 65 job that 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 you see from you know in the kind of in the movies. But you know, there will be a potential risk of you know job churn, as the the finance minister has said. Um, I feel that there's going to be a question about uh, uh, retirement security, both in terms of the loss of defined pen- the pensions in, uh, in general and defined benefit contribution pensions in specifics. There's also the worry that um, with increased life expectancy, uh, it'll be interesting to see how we address, you know, uh, retirement, how we address taking care of the elderly. There are worries, I think, around, around um, housing, uh, especially in some of our biggest cities. Again, this affects the millennials and the, the, the people who will be retiring soon. How do we transition those homes? Um, do we have to see a major readjustment of value? Um, or do we know, uh, and this is controversial in many of our cities, do we have to basically bore our house market with foreign capital from China mm. and, and so on? You know, all of these questions, I think, are playing out. I don't think the millennial generation is going to be, you know, living in huts, eating, you know, potatoes and tree moss necessarily, but I, I do see a lot of challenges here. And I, it could be a generation that, uh, for a lot of people, live less, uh, you know, economically stable lives in their parents. Hmm. Cristo Abelis has been with us and, of course, Queen's University labor and political history professor. Cristo, thanks for the time and insight. Fascinating discussion. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.